Well, good morning, church. I do want to say happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there as well. Well, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis 39. We are going to continue our series in the life of Joseph this morning. Genesis 39, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter today. And I am uh, really excited about this passage because as we are going to see, I think that this passage uniquely speaks to questions that all of us ask ourselves, questions that in the moments in life where things get hard, where things go bad, where we ask ourselves, where we think in the, in the, the depths of our heart, where we ask and we say, God, when everything's going wrong, where are you? When things are difficult in life, God, where are you? Are you still here do you still care? I think, um, I think for many of us, as we look at our lives right now, I don't think we have to think long or hard about the last time that we've asked ourselves this question. As we think about the reality of the pandemic that we are living in right now, the reality of the coronavirus pandemic. As you think about the very real health concerns that are surrounding this virus, as you think about the hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their lives or who've gotten very seriously ill, or maybe as you think about some of the unintended consequences of the shelter-in-place orders, you think of the increases in domestic and child abuse or the spike in opioid-related deaths. And, none of, and this is to say nothing of the unknown spiritual, emotional, and financial impacts that this is going to have on us. Think about the realities that for some of you, I'm just mindful of our high school seniors are just experiencing real loss in this time right now as you are losing out on a graduation or a prom or a formal, something that you've perhaps looked forward to your whole life. And in the midst of all of this, you are just asking, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen? And we know to this reality that it's not something we ask ourselves only in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, but in the struggles of daily life, those that existed long before the coronavirus, those that will continue to exist long afterwards, in the midst of these daily struggles, we all experience times in our lives where we question, God, where are you? It seems like if you were near, if you were close, that none of this would be happening. And it's into this reality that in God's kindness, he gives us this part of Joseph's story. Because here in this passage, we see God's answer to these questions. So this morning, as we turn to our passage, I hope that as we enter into this very familiar story, that we can see it with new eyes. That I'd like to draw out the main point and spend some time applying that to our lives. So, this, so starting in Genesis 39, verse 1, we read, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who brought him down there. Here we see that the narrator brings the focus of this story back onto what is going on in Joseph's life. If you remember back in chapter 38, we took a brief excursus as we looked at what was going on in the life of Judah while Joseph had been sold into slavery. And here in verse 1, we catch back up with Joseph. We see what is going on in his life. And here in verse 1, we read that the human traffickers who had bought Joseph took him down to Egypt where he is forced to stand by and watch again as he is sold from them. He is sold into the hand of, of a man that they call Potiphar. Well, Joseph doesn't know it at the time, but Potiphar is a very important person. We see that he is the captain of the guard. This most likely referring to the fact that he was the person in charge of the king's prisons. And this turns out to be very important as we'll see later. 
Now, before we see what happens next in this story, just think for a moment about what Joseph's experiencing in these moments. Joseph has gone from being in an honored position at home to being beaten and thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery. Joseph has gone from a position of power and prominence to feeling alone and afraid. As we see here in verse 31, his whole world is crashing down in front of his eyes. All of his hopes and his dreams for the future are gone. And it's at this moment as we are reading this passage, as we get just one verse into this story, that the question starts bubbling up inside of us as we ask, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing these things to happen in Joseph's life? Can't you just imagine that Joseph himself is asking these exact same questions? Well, the truth here is, friends, and the encouragement is that we're not left wondering very long. There's no tension in the narrative as we ask and as we wonder where God is, because in verses 2 and 3, we are explicitly told where God is. Look with me in verse 2. We read that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Where was God when everything was going wrong in Joseph's life? The answer, he was right next to him. As we see two times in this verses here, that the Lord was with Joseph. Here we see that in the presence of his suffering and hardship, in the presence of suffering and hardship in Joseph's life, it didn't mean the absence of God. God was with him as he, as we saw, just as we saw in the verses we just read, and he caused all that Joseph did to succeed, to prosper. In fact, we see that Joseph's success, because God is with him, is so phenomenal that even Pharaoh, an Egyptian, someone who would not have been one to likely point out Israel's God, he even sees that Joseph's God is with him. And so Joseph does the, and so Potiphar does the natural thing here, as we see in verse 4, that he makes Joseph his personal attendant. He puts Joseph in charge of everything. I'm sure he's thinking, oh, every little thing I've given Joseph that he's been put in charge of, it just succeeds, it prospers. Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put Joseph in charge of everything. And things work out just as he had planned, as we see in verses 4 and 5, that everything that Joseph has put in charge of, it seeds, God blesses it, it prospers. And with all of this, we're beginning to see that things are looking up for Joseph. I mean, sure, he's not at home where he would prefer to be, but things could certainly be much worse. But this isn't the end of our story, because while I'm sure that Joseph is full of hope with his newfound position, things go down really fast, showing us here that God's presence doesn't mean that bad things will never happen in our lives. Look with me, starting at verse 6, where we read, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Here we see that not only was Joseph a young man who was blessed by God, but that he was also handsome in form and appearance. And having been elevated to this high position by Potiphar, he catches the eye of none other than Potiphar's wife. And it turns out that she is very interested in him. And as a woman in this position of power, she is used to getting what she wants. And so she issues a command to Joseph. She tells him, lie with me. But Joseph's response isn't exactly what she's expecting to hear. 
as in verses 8 and 9, he tells her, he tells Potiphar's wife, he says, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness, catch this, and sin against God? For Joseph to do this, for Joseph to lie with Potiphar's wife, would be a betrayal to Potiphar himself. It would be an act of great wickedness, as Joseph tells us. But more than that, Joseph says that it would be a sin against God. And here we explicitly see that Joseph is aware of God's presence with him. Earlier in the text, in verses 2 and 3, we've been told that God was with Jacob. And here we see that this fact wasn't lost on him. Joseph was very aware of God's presence with him, and so he seeks to honor the Lord. He's a man living in the fear of the Lord as he refuses to lie with Potiphar's wife. But unfortunately, we see here that Joseph's little speech does little to quell her desires, because we're told in verse 10 that she spoke to Joseph day after day, here we see that she is relentless, if nothing else, as she, as she pesters him day after day. But Joseph stands his ground, and he continues to refuse to lie with her. And all of this seems to be working out really well for Joseph, until one day he walks into the house to get to work, only to find that it's completely empty. And before he's able to piece anything together, there she is, seizing the opportunity that she's been looking for, and she grabs Joseph by his garment, and she says again, lie with me. Backed into a corner here, we see that Joseph isn't sure what to do, but he knows that he needs to get out of there, and he needs to get out of there fast as possible. And as we see in verse 12, that this is exactly what he does. He flees, he runs away, leaving his garment in her hands. Now, before we see what happens next in the story, I just want to speak to the reality that for many of us, this passage has only been, been read or taught in the context of sexual purity. And while I don't think that this passage here is primarily about purity, I do think that we can make some applications to this area of our lives. Because while I would venture to say that none of us are struggling with our bosses' spouses finding us so irresistible that they're constantly throwing themselves at us, I don't think many of us are in that boat, but all of us do face sexual temptation in one form or another. Whether it be pornography, whether it be romance novels or mental fantasies or a thousand other things, all of us are daily bombarded with sexual temptations just as Joseph was pestered day by day by Potiphar's wife. And as we face these temptations, it's not wrong for us to look at Joseph's example and to imitate him as we flee youthful lusts, as Paul calls us to do. And just like Joseph's action was extreme, it's possible that your response to sexual temptation might need to be extreme as well. Perhaps that means removing a computer from your room, getting rid of your smartphone, or installing um, some, some form of uh, internet monitoring service. These, these can all be good things. But I just want to encourage you that perhaps the most extreme thing that you can do, but I promise you, the most helpful thing that you can possibly do as you fight this temptation 
is to tell someone in your small group, to tell someone in your friend group about these things and receive their help. Because as you bring these things into light, as you walk in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in community, I promise you that God will meet you and God will help you through your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can always reach out to myself or any of the other elders or our wives, if, and we would love to care for you as well, especially if you find that you are just particularly enslaved in this sin. We would love to meet you and care for you in any ways we can. Well, getting back to our scene here as Joseph has fleed, as he has run out, leaving his garment behind him, you can only imagine that Joseph running out here hasn't made Potiphar's wife happy. No, she's been spurned. No, here we see that she has been spurned by Joseph one too many times. And she comes up with this elaborate story here to get rid of him, presumably to have him killed. In verse 16, we see that she sets the scene as she meticulously lays Joseph's garment on the couch next to her as she waits for Potiphar to get home. And no sooner does Potiphar walk through the door does she burst out into these well-rehearsed lines that we see in verse 17 where she says, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. We see here that she's told her story, but now it's time to see how he's going to respond. And as we see in verse 19, we read that as soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, that this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Potiphar hears these words from his wife and he is angry. His, his nostrils are flaring. But the truth is, as we look at this passage here, we're not really sure why Potiphar's angry or better yet, who Potiphar is angry with. Is he angry with Joseph for perhaps doing this to his wife? Is he angry with his, that his wife is accusing him? I mean, you can, can hear the tone in, in her words, right? This Hebrew servant whom you brought into the house. Is that why he's angry? Or maybe he's angry because he knows he's going to lose Joseph's services. Perhaps he knows the character of his wife, but he knows that he can't just stand back and do nothing. He, he has to save face. Joseph is no longer going to be able to stay in charge of everything over his house. Well, we're not really sure why he's angry, but in verse 20, we are told what Potiphar does. We're told that Potiphar took Joseph and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were combined. Joseph here has been faithful, and it lands him in prison. And here we see again that life has gone from bad to worse for Joseph. And as we look at this, I bet that you can imagine those same questions bubbling up that we had earlier, where, we are, where we're asking, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen in Joseph's life? But just like we saw earlier, we can no sooner get these words out of our mouth. We can no sooner complete these thoughts than we are told as we see in verse 21, that the Lord was with Joseph. Throughout this whole ordeal, when Joseph's been betrayed yet again, as Joseph is wronged, as he is falsely imprisoned, God has been with him the whole time. And in Potiphar's, and in, and in prison here, we see that God does the same thing for Joseph that he did when he first came to Potiphar's house. He gives him favor in the warden's eyes as Joseph is once again put in control over everything. 
In verse 23, we read that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Here, here he is again, number two in command, only this time in charge of the king's prison. And this is how our scene ends. So in this, in this passage here, in this count in Genesis 39, we have seen Joseph go from Potiphar's house to prison, and we can be left wondering, what is the point of all of this? I think that if we wanted to boil down the point of the main point of this story, I would argue that God has given us this scene in Joseph's life. God has given us this part of Joseph's story to dramatically convince us that God is present in the good and the bad, bringing about his good purposes bringing about his good purposes here. That's what this passage is here to show us. It is here to show us that God is present with us even when everything goes wrong, and through it all, he's bringing about his good purposes. Just to, to make sure that we don't miss this reality here, we see that God intentionally leads Moses to bookend this chapter highlighting this very point. And just check out the parallels that we see between verses 2 and 4 and verses 21 to 23. And we notice that the same phrases are, re are repeated. Time and again, we read that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave him favor. The Lord made all that he did succeed. You see, God doesn't want us to think for one second that because all of these terrible things were happening to Joseph, that somehow he was absent. God knows that it's important that we see and that we understand that he was always with Joseph because he wants you and I to be absolutely certain that he is always with us and that through it all, he is bringing about his good purposes. Isn't God so kind to us? As I think about our current cultural moment here, with all of the uncertainty around us, I honestly can't think of a message that our hearts need to hear more than the one that we see in this story. The fact that God is with us at all times, and He is bringing about His good purposes. For the rest of our time, what I would like to do is just tease this out a bit and make some applications to our lives. Let's look at the first half of our main point here as we see that God is present in the good and the bad. As I mentioned earlier, I know that for many of us, our first reaction when bad things happen is to question, God, where are you? You see, you and I can easily fall into the trap of thinking about and relating to God as if he were, were some sort of divine butler, almost as if he was like uh, Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey. You know, he is there whenever we call on him to get us exactly what we need to live the hashtag blessed life. But the rest of the time, he is just out of sight, out of mind. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that God's presence with us is a promise of protection from anything bad ever happening to us. And so as we find that, that this is how we're thinking, if we can easily slip into this way of thinking, it is no surprise that when bad things happen in our lives, the very first thing that we are tempted to do is to question God, where are you? Is that we can think that God is just not with us. We can think that God doesn't care about us. Or worst of all, we can think that whatever is happening to us is just a punishment for some sin. 
And this easily leads to despair and hopelessness as we are basing God's presence with us on our present circumstances. But it's into this reality that this passage, it stops us from traveling down that road as it assures us that God is with us at all times. Here we see that his presence with us, it's not a blank check offering us our best life now. But as we, because we've seen that this wasn't true for Joseph, and as Jesus tells us, this isn't true for us either. If you remember in John 16, Jesus tells us that in this world, we will have trouble. But while God's presence with us doesn't remove all of the bad things from our lives, it does change our experience of suffering. Just listen to a few of the things that the Bible says God's presence can do for us. In Psalm 23, we see that God's presence restores our souls, even in the valley of the shadow of death. In Psalm 16, we see that, God's present, that in God's presence, we experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, no matter what's going on around us. In Psalm 73, we see that God's nearness and presence with us is for our good. It gives us perspective on things. In Romans 15, a benediction we normally end with, we see that God's presence fills us with peace and with joy regardless of our circumstances. And this is just scratching the surface. Because not only does God's presence give us these things, it also comforts us in the midst of our fear. I'm sure it comes as no surprise that when we experience suffering, when bad things happen to us, that we are easily tempted to fear. I mean, just imagine what, what Joseph was going through in those moments where he has ran out of the house. He has heard what Potiphar's wife has told Potiphar. You can just imagine the worst case scenarios that are running through his head. And in the same way as we are experiencing this coronavirus pandemic, I'm just mindful of all of the ways that we can be tempted to fear. We can fear contracting the virus ourselves. We can fear for our jobs or for our finances. There's certainly an untold amount of anxiety about our unknown future, not to mention the worry that we can have for vulnerable family and friends. And into these fears, the story of Joseph whispers in our ears those comforting words of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, where in the second stanza we sing, Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. Fear and dismay. I think, think these, these, these sum up our natural responses to trials and suffering in our lives. And here in this passage, we see that we don't need to fear or be dismayed when everything goes wrong because we know that God is with us. His presence assures us that there is nothing that you or I will go through that he doesn't experience with us. Joseph, Jesus was with, or God was with Joseph in the pit. He was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, and he was with him in prison. In church, he is with us when we were sheltering in place, weary from the demands of the day or discouraged from the lack of community. And he is with us as we are unable to fall asleep at night, wondering why all of this is going on. The story of Joseph here shows us that we can never sink lower then Christ can descend, and this should be a great comfort to our hearts. Now, I don't know everything that you are going through, but, but do you long to experience the joy and the peace and the comfort that God's presence, that God's presence brings?
Does your soul need to be refreshed? Look to God. Look to Him. Have eyes to see that He is near you and that He is with you, that He is your God, and that He will give you aid in your season. Now, before we continue, I, I know that this can be a, a hard reality for some of us to believe. Um, perhaps even now you're sitting there hearing this and you are just plagued by feelings of, of guilt and shame over past failures or perhaps the ways that you've been sinned against. And, and you're just sitting there and you're thinking that, Josh, there is no way that anyone would want to be near me. There is no way anyone would want to be close to me, yet alone God. And if you can relate I just want to give you some good news. Actually, I want to share with you the greatest news in the world, and that is that God's presence with you isn't dependent upon who you are or what you have done, but God's presence with you is 100% based on who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Because in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has forgiven your sins. God has declared not guilty all who will look to Him and believe. And all of this leads to the greatest good of the gospel, that God has, the reality that God has brought us into an intimate relationship with Him, one that is not dependent upon us, but is solely dependent upon Him. So if you have never trusted in Jesus before, if you are tempted to think that you are just too far gone, take comfort that in Christ, God has made a way for you to be restored to an intimate relationship with, into an intimate relationship with Him, and He is inviting you to come, no matter your story. So turn from your sin, even right now, and receive His promised forgiveness that destroys the power of guilt and shame in our lives and allows us to experience the with God life. And we know here that this isn't just good for, for not, this isn't just good news for non-Christians because it continues to be good news for Christians as well because I know that feelings of guilt and shame can also convince us that Jesus is far from us as well that he is distant. But this passage here reassures our hearts that in the good and the bad, in times of prosperity and times of adversity, that God is with us. So if you are a Christian and you find yourself struggling to believe that God is with you, that he is near to you right now, I would just encourage you to pray to him, ask him to give you eyes to see that he is with you, that you might be aware of his presence right now and experience the comfort and the joy that this brings. That's the first part, the fact that God is present with us in the good and the bad. But secondly, here we see that God is, that God is with us bringing about his purposes. Looking at this chapter, you might just be asking, how is God bringing about his purposes? Um, it can almost look just like purposeless suffering. But as we read this passage, knowing the end of the story, we know that it is absolutely vital that Joseph ends up in this jail cell. It is part of God's plan to save his people, to fulfill his promises to Joseph's great-great-grandfather Abraham, as we'll see in more detail next Sunday. So at one level here, we can see that Joseph's experience of suffering, of, of hardship here, is part of God's bigger plan for salvation history. 
But that's not that's, that all that's going on here, because while it's not explicitly stated in this passage here, from the re- in this passage, from the rest of the Bible, we know that God uses our experiences of suffering and trials to draw us closer to himself and to make us more like Jesus. And this certainly appears to be the case in Joseph's life. I mean, how else can we explain his ongoing commitment to God in the midst of the horrible things that he has experienced? Here we see that Joseph suffers well because he knew that God was with him. He suffered well because he knew that God was with him and that in his sufferings, that his sufferings enabled him to experience more of God, to see and experience more of God's heart of love towards him and to sense his nearness in ways that he wouldn't have otherwise. And the same is true for you and for me. God is using all things. He is using the good and the bad to draw us closer to himself that we might become more like him. Ken Geyer, in his book, Life as We Want It, Life as We Were Given It, paints a, paints a helpful picture of what I'm trying to get at here. In his book, he contrasts the flat and even terrain of eastern Colorado with the breathtaking beauty of the Rocky Mountains on the western side of the state. And as he notes, he notes that these majestic and awe-inspiring mountains, they are the result of stupendous tectonic shifts, violent geological upheavals. They are the result of cataclysmic tremors and massive earthquakes. And as a result of all of this going on, people from all over the world, they flock to witness their grandeur and to enjoy the Rocky, Mountains high, the Rocky Mountain highs, whereas the flat eastern part of the state hardly sees a tourist. And in light of this, this distinction here, he makes this connection. I just want you to, to listen in because I don't want you to write this. I want you to miss this. Here he writes, he writes that the oftentimes surprising shifts, upheaval trem- upheavals, tremors, and earthquakes in our lives are the means that God uses to mold his people into what he wants them to be through the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, he writes that it's the oftentimes surprising shifts, upheavals, tremors, and earthquakes in our lives that are the means by which God molds us into the people he wants us to be through the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying that just like the painful, difficult, and stressful moment and movements in the earth are the means that God uses to bring out the beauty of the Rocky Mountains, so the painful, difficult, and stressful experiences in our lives are the things that he's using to mold us into the people that he wants us to be, those who are conformed to the image of his beautiful son, Jesus Christ, as he draws us closer, allowing us to experience him in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise. This is, this is how we can see, this is how Moses can say in verse 21, that even as Joseph is being thrown into jail, that God was showing him steadfast love. 
Do you see that there in verse 21? As Joseph is being thrown into jail, God is with him, showing him steadfast love. And we can only make sense of this because in this experience, Joseph is going to be able to see more clearly who God is for him and come to know and experience his love in deeper and more intimate ways. And this is exactly what God wants to do for you and for me. Is this how you're thinking about your struggles and suffering right now? As you think about all of the hard things that you are walking through, as you think the mom- through the moments in your life that cause you to ask, God, where are you? Are you viewing them through the lens that God is up to something bigger and better than we could ever dream as he is using these moments in our lives to draw us closer to himself that we might experience more of who he is for us? Because that is what God is up to in the midst of these trials. As I was reflecting on this reality, I immediately thought of Jeff and Jane Richards' response to the immense suffering that they have experienced over the last 18 months. Just listen to what they say in a recent testimony that we heard. They write, As we thought about why we both felt that we would not exchange anything this last year has brought, we came to this conclusion that there is an intimacy with God you can only learn by going through trials and suffering. It's by design, His design. They write, Looking back at how much closer we are to our Lord and learning to rely on Him, we are both unwilling to to make the trade. If this is the price of intimacy with Him, then so be it. As many of you know, they they have experienced rocky mountain level suffering. And through it all, they say they would not change a thing because they've seen God's because they've seen what God is doing in there as he is drawing them closer to himself. Hear that last line again as they say, if this is the price of intimacy with him, then so be it. Church, I hope you're seeing that your suffering is not meaningless. It is not purposeless. God is up to much better things in each of our lives than a life free of pain and trouble. But when those moments in our lives, when we are tempted to ask, where is God when everything goes wrong? This passage helps us to see that God is with us and that he is up to to something better than we can ask or imagine through it all. That is where God is in the midst of our struggles and our challenges. That is where God is when everything seems to go wrong. Pray with me. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture that you have given to us. Father, we thank you for your kind reminder to us that in the midst of all of life's experiences, the good and the bad, that you are with us and that you are bringing about your purposes. You are accomplishing something good. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe the words that we have heard, Lord, and give us the grace to live in the good of them. Amen.